Welcome to Passing Notes with Ashley and Shanda. I'm Shanda Sung, and I'm a comedian. And I'm Ashley Morgan, and I'm a farmer. We've been best friends since we were nine years old. Welcome to our show, where we teach each other all kinds of things that cover our wide range of knowledge and interests. And today's episode is Transportation Tragedies. Oh, man. We're bringing the people what they want, which is <laughs> sadness, disaster, <laughs> death, destruction. This is what sells podcasts, people. <laughs> Bunch of sickos. Yeah. What's wrong with all of you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, that's the, the interesting stuff. This is... I don't know. I don't want to say our bread and butter. I don't think that's true. But we have had a lot of disasters. They're still entertaining, as as sad and depressing as they can sometimes yeah, be. It's still kind yeah. of entertaining. There's a reason that true crime is an industry now. Yeah, man. Yeah. So, yes, that's what we're bringing to you. This is uh, transportation-themed tragedies. I think it's going to be... It's going to be more interesting, more history, educational. It's not, we're not all here for the blood and guts. <laughs> the doom and gloom. The doom and gloom, yeah. So you know a little bit about transportation. Eh? Oh boy, do eh? I. <laughs> I made a career out of it. I mean, you got the hell out of that career. So I, I sure did. That also says something. I sure did. Yeah, I was a flight attendant for 10 years and... Tyler is still a pilot. He's going on 25 plus years being a pilot. Oh, he old. Shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> but he's only 26 years old. That's oh, what. <laughs> he was that famous baby pilot. <laughs> but we are definitely the type of people now, I think because we were in the airline industry and Tyler still is, that we would rather drive. Most people have the rule of like, Oh, if it's within eight hours, I'll just drive it. We're like, if it's within 24 hours, we will drive it. <laughs> yeah, I think also in the time that you spent in Denver, you made that drive from Denver to Indiana so yes. many times that it just kind of became old hat for you. So that yes. probably helped also. Absolutely. We lived in Colorado and for holidays, we would always drive back mm -hmm. to Indiana and Ohio to visit family. Well, we did not want to travel by plane during a major holiday. Plus, right. we had presents and you know perhaps a dog at the time. So yeah. we wanted to have our stuff with us and not have to worry about flying as a non-revenue passenger using our benefits during the holidays. No way, man. Yeah. And so we would literally drive the 22 hours, I think it was. Yeah. And we would drive straight through. We'd take turns and nap in the passenger seat. and But it was great. We loved it. We saw a lot of the country. We didn't take the same route twice, pretty much. If we had time, we'd take back roads and it would take mm -hmm. us two or three days to get home. And we loved it. And you didn't even have this podcast to listen to to keep you entertained. Uh, we didn't really have podcasts at all <laughs> oh, back yeah. then. That was still kind of a, a newer concept, particularly to us. But I've been cross-country multiple times. I went to Burning Man three times, and that's in Reno, Nevada. So the first time I went, I drove from Indianapolis in my little Ford Ranger mm -hmm. all the way to Rideau, Nevada by myself. <laughs> 
and back. Then the second time, my roommate and our friend Nia went with me and her and I drove to Chicago and then took the train from Chicago to Reno. And that was cool. Man, I'm so mad I didn't go with you guys on that. Oh, gosh. I loved taking the train. It was so much fun. You got to see things you did not see from the road. Yeah. We took the route, except for a deviation in Denver, that the Transcontinental Railroad was originally built, which I say that because that's part of my topic today. (laughs) So... Hey, going to talk about the Transcontinental Railroad actually kind of took that. So, but you got to go through the mountains. And what was really neat was in Denver, we picked up a tour guide, essentially. And in the one car that had glass ceilings, so you could see panoramic views, he would get on there and tell, he had a microphone and he would tell us stories about the area and the history. And pretty much from Denver, I think, to... Grand Junction, and then he got off. And so all through the Rocky Mountains (laughs) of Colorado, we were given a history. That's really awesome, but also, like, are you sure it wasn't just some chatty old guy? (laughs) (laughs) Who gave that guy a microphone? (laughs) It's like, don't worry, I brought my own. (laughs) That reminds me. And then our third time, Tyler and I went, and it was in my Ford Ranger again, I believe. And then we drove from Denver this time to Reno. And so it was just an easy, breezy little jaunt. Yeah. (laughs) By then. Yeah, that was pretty easy. That was a lot of fun. I put a lot of miles on that truck. So yeah, Yeah, that train thing, having a guide reminded me of um, Josh's mom's side of the family is from Duluth, Minnesota, and his grandfather lived there for many, many, many years. And we went up to visit a few years ago. He has since passed, but at the time he was 92. And we decided to take a train up the coast of Lake Superior. And there was an overhead, like over the mic tour guide explaining these things. But his grandpa, Grandpa Wimpy, was just being like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And (laughs) you're like, oh, that used to be the restaurant that I worked in for many years. It was called the Lemon Drop. And I did this. And then they said over here was where the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald, a very famous ship that sank in the Superior right there off of Duluth. And he was like, oh, I remember that happening because it was in the 70s. And he was like, <laughs> I knew some people. I was wow. like, it was crazy. <laughs> if you have the opportunity to uh, tour somewhere with a 90-year-old who has lived in the area their whole life, I would highly recommend it. I was just like <laughs> riveted. To everything this man ever said. He was just so entertaining. <laughs> That's but, so cool. Yeah. So we've we've done a lot of road tripping. We drove up to Duluth. That was 14 hours. And we went to Florida a couple months ago and we drove. Mm-hmm. That was about 14, 15 hours. And the kids do surprisingly well for that That's long great. in a vehicle. But because we're the same way, it's like, you know, when I was younger, I would have preferred to hop on a plane But now just the logistics of having all the kids and then, okay, what happens when we get off the plane and we have car seats we need to figure out and all of this stuff. So maybe we'll consider flying more often when they're older. Mm -hmm. But I love a road trip. It's nice to be able to leave exactly when you want to leave. And 
move around wherever you are. But I've traveled a bit this year. I went to New Orleans back in December and we got on the steamboat uh, Natchez. Natchez. Nachos? Uh, Nachos. Uh, Yeah, steamboat nachos. Um, But this, this is a steamboat that right now it's just for touristy tours. They have it. It's there in the Mississippi and they just go up and down. We did a two hour tour and it was super cool. And that was the first time I'd ever been on anything like that. And that will actually come up in what I'm talking about today. So yeah, we got all kinds of tie-ins. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe someday I'll learn to fly. Flying private, having your personal plane would be fun. Where do you park it though? My garage is one car. You just fold up the wings. Got so many Christmas decorations in there. I don't think I can fit a Cessna. <laughs> Gonna have to move them. Fit your airplane. Yeah. My grandpa flies and he wanted to get his pilot's license for many years. And unfortunately, he has a heart condition. Mm. So he wasn't able to be medically cleared to fly on his own. But he will fly with an instructor. And that was hard. He really wanted to do that. And he had put a lot of work in. So that bumped him out that he couldn't but he's still he's a member of a flying club at their local mm-hmm. very small airport and we went and took the kids up in a little thing and cool lena <laughs> lena was like i want out i want out open the door open the door <laughs> like that's not how you get out let's not do that <laughs> but once we got a little higher up and she could see some cool things and she was like okay i'm good but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was like the noise of takeoff she was not yeah. into. But maybe I'll learn to fly and I'll take my grandpa. We'll go around and then he'll be mad that I did it. I don't know. I don't think he would. <laughs> would that be like rubbing in his face? My heart's fine. No. <laughs> That's so mean. <laughs> oh, man. I'm on a tangent here. That's what we do. I just listened to our pop culture episode. If you haven't listened to it, I think you should. It might be one of my favorites because it's just ridiculous because (laughs) (laughs) we had to plan around some vacations. So we took two weeks off of recording and then we came back and you could just tell we were (laughs) loosey-goosey. I liked it. It was fun. We've gotten a little bit of feedback on it. I hope you guys liked it, too. If you haven't listened to it, listen to it and then tell us how unprofessional we are. (laughs) I like to think that's our calling card now is unprofessional professionals. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we're going to talk about some transportation. Oh, yeah. Let's 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 talk about some stories here. I'm going first today. Yes. I'm going to talk about Theodore Judah. And his role in the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. Mm. So before I get into talking about the man himself, I want to give a very brief but relevant history lesson. I love those. Just for some context. Let's start in 1803. Thomas Jefferson facilitated the Louisiana Purchase, where the United States bought the land that is pretty much from Mexico to Canada, west of the Mississippi, east of the Rocky Mountains, the whole Central Plains area. We bought that from the French. Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark on an expedition to check it out. What's out there? Report back. That lasted from 1804 to 1806. 
So they really took the scenic route. Yes. Yeah, they avoided highways on that trip. (laughs) They really took their time. (laughs) They took their time. They kept logs. They kept journals. It was great. Then around 1811, the Oregon Trail was pseudo-established by fur traders as they traveled back and forth. Then the wagon trains came around 1836. Those were immigrants moving west Mm -hmm. to find land, to find freedom. From the Oregon Trail, there were some trails that branched off. There was a California Trail in 1843, the Mormon Trail in 1847, and the Bozeman Trail in 1863. Then the California Gold Rush happened... In 1848, and so then you had a huge swarm of people that wanted to go west. Mm. In fact, California had such a boom then in their population, they became a state in 1850. So two years after the start of the gold rush, yeah, they became a state. So now that the central United States was open... Which, mind you, not many states were established at that point. Right, yeah. But now that that was, for the most part, open to travel, people were heading west, looking for the American dream, looking for riches, looking for free land, all that. Mm -hmm. So now that we know a little bit about the when and the why, let's talk a little bit about the how. How people got west came in three different ways. One by wagon, the iconic wagon train, right? Mm -hmm. But they had to cross rivers, go over mountains. They had to deal with Native Americans, which the government and the military had not treated the Native Americans very well throughout the years. And they didn't want people coming into their area and fucking shit up. So they weren't always very nice for Mm. good reason. (laughs) Even when... People were just passing through. Yeah. And so it was very hazardous to travel by wagon train between the geography and the weather and all the hazards. Plus, it took months and it was expensive. You had to carry supplies with you. When you ran out of supplies, you had to buy them at the various forts and Mm -hmm. whatnot that were established throughout. The second way that people went from coast to coast, was to sail around South America. Literally, you had to sail by ship all the way around. (laughs) Yeah, that's a hell of a detour. Yes, all the way around South America and then back up. And that took six months. Yeah. And it was expensive. And it was not without its hazards. You're out to sea for six months. You've got storms and hurricanes and all sorts of stuff. And it was boring as hell. (laughs) This is is no Disney cruise, okay? Yeah. Mickey Mouse isn't coming to Tableside to entertain you. No, 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 no. It was pretty lame. The third way was to sail down to Panama, travel 20 miles over land, then sail up the West Coast. Mm. The Panama Canal wouldn't be built until 1914. Yeah. So there was no real great way to get across Panama. Yeah. Again, hazards. You're going through the jungle. There's tons of disease from the bugs and the water and all sorts of stuff. 
you had then weather and logs and all sorts of just stuff in the way. Even with the trails that were established, they would become muddy and mm. deep ruts and you had to carry your supplies and all this stuff. Then once you got to the West Coast, you had to wait for a ship coming from South America, yeah. heading up the coast to stop in that port and pick you up and take you the rest of the way up to California. So none of those ways were ideal. Right. Now, let's switch gears. Now that we know a little bit of the context of the history and kind of what was going on of how you got from coast to coast, let's actually talk about Theodore Judah. Mm. Now, how I came to learn about this man was through a book I read at the beginning of the year called Nothing Like It in the World mm -hmm. by Stephen E. Ambrose. It is the story of the Transcontinental Railroad and mm -hmm. how it came to be. Stephen E. Ambrose was the guy who wrote Band of Brothers. Okay. Which I never read that. But he also wrote Undaunted Courage, which was about the Lewis and Clark expedition. And that I did read. And that yeah. was really good. Nothing Like It in the World was also very good. I liked it. Very informative. I'm writing these down. <laughs> <laughs> I always love an excuse to buy more books. I recommend... <laughs> Undaunted Courage, for sure. Yeah, that's the one that, that, that caught Peek, my ear. Piqued your interest? Yeah. Yeah. It's very good. It's very detailed. Cool. Yes. I loved it. And so in reading this book about the Transcontinental Railroad, of course, there's a ton of characters, but Theodore Judah was the one who caught my eye. And yeah. so let me get into his story a little bit. Okay. So he was born in 1826 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. When he was younger, his family moved to Troy, New York. As a teen, he studied civil engineering. He had a passion for railroad mm -hmm. and the brains for engineering. So this was the perfect yeah. career path that he was heading for him. At 23 years old, he married... Anne Pierce in Massachusetts in 1948, and they were pretty much inseparable. Mm -hmm. They were a great couple. In the late 1840s and early 1850s, he worked for the railroad all around the Northeast, mm -hmm. which is where he's from, in his area, getting his feet wet on how to do all this. And he worked for the railroads. He was very smart, very successful. In 1854, when he was 28 years old, he was hired to go to California Again, there was this boom out there. Mm -hmm. They needed more transportation out there. So he was hired to go to California. Him and his wife took the Panama route. Yeah. Because they were young. They're like, this sucks. <laughs> it, they were young, so it was a little easier for them than most. But yeah, yeah it, it still sucked. Yeah. So they get out to California and... From the mid to late 1850s, he helped build railroads throughout California, connecting mm -hmm. a lot of these big cities. For anyone who had traveled back and forth or wanted to travel back and forth, pretty much anybody in the 1800s knew there was a need for a transcontinental railroad. Yeah. There were railroads all over east of the Mississippi yeah. connecting all these major cities. There was now growth in railroads in California and all along the West Coast. 
there needed to be a better way to get from coast to coast. Yeah. The way that it had been done was just not cutting it anymore. Yeah. And Theodore Judah, being the intelligent man that he is, of course, knew the need was there. And in 1859, he made a plan, just wrote out his ideas of how and where to put a transcontinental railroad, mm -hmm. starting in San Francisco. And he went to Washington to lobby them for the funds to build this railroad, starting in California and moving east. The higher ups in Washington said no, because we're on the brink of civil war. We got bigger fish to fry right now. We're dealing with some shit. Yeah. Sorry, bud. No, not right now. And so in 1860, he was like, you know what? Fine. I'll freaking do it myself. <laughs> and he went up to the Sierra Nevada mountain range to survey the best route. And he was up there for months. The thing about the Sierra Nevadas is that it's one mountain range, but it's two peaks that run parallel to each other in, yeah. in a line. And so he was going to have to find a way to get over both peaks to mm -hmm. get across. Well, he did find a path, and I believe it was called Donner's Path. Don't quote me on that. I forgot to write it down. But there was a pass that was the best path to go through the mountains because it had one peak. It was like mm -hmm. this one area where there was not a second peak on the other side of it. And he was like, yes, that, that one, that's the way. We're going to go that way. And he had it all mapped out. And he was able to write a more specific plan with measurements, distances, grading percentages, mm -hmm. where to build the bridges if it needed it, where to build tunnels where it was needed, all this stuff to get through the mountains. This plan, he actually had it leaving Sacramento. And I don't know what the deal was between San Francisco and Sacramento. I don't know if there was mm -hmm. plans to connect those two cities, if maybe they were already connected. I don't really know the deal. But his new plan was, here's specifics, and it's out of Sacramento now. And since the government wasn't really too keen on planning this, he went to five Sacramento merchants to help him finance. And these were the money guys, right? Yeah. They had money. Between all the men, they established the Central Pacific Railway in 61. Great. They got the plan. They got the financing. Shit. Now they need the land. Yeah. Back to Washington, he goes to lobby the government for the land needed to build this railroad. Because this was pretty much all open land at this point. Yeah. But they still had to buy it from the government. The government essentially owned all the land. They had to get it from them. So in 62, Abraham Lincoln signed the Pacific Railway Act essentially giving the land to these railroads because yeah. he knew it was needed. Right, yeah. He was a huge proponent of getting a transcontinental railroad. Plus, he was getting pressured from the Union Pacific Railroad to move west. So what he decided was he's like, I'm going to sign this Railway Act, and it's essentially going to be a race of the Central Pacific Railroad moving east yeah. And the Union Pacific Railroad moving west, essentially a race to Salt Lake City. Okay. It was more of a competition between the finance guys. There was no, like, 
prize yeah. other than bragging rights. Yeah. But Lincoln was like, all right, guys, get it done. I'm counting on you. So Theodore Judah was like, hell yeah, we're on it. We're getting it done. This is awesome. Let's get started. The problem was, is that he was fighting with his finance guys there in Sacramento. They're money guys. They're business guys. Yeah. They just want it done fast. Get it done so we can yeah. start getting fares going and we can start making our money back. Where Theodore Judah was like, I'm an engineer guy. Yeah. I want it done right. Yeah, let's try not to kill everybody with this. Right. I want to make sure it's done safe and correctly and with the right measurements and all this stuff. But the finance guys were like, no, let's get it done fast. But part of the problem with getting it done fast was they could only go so fast because of materials. Yeah. If you were shipping materials from the East Coast to the West Coast, how'd you get them there? Yeah. Ships around the South America. Yeah. So getting supplies there... It took a while to get started, but they were on their way, at least at this point. But because Theodore Judah was fighting with these finance guys on how best to proceed, he went back to Washington mm -hmm. to try to get money in order to buy these guys out. Uh, yeah. Essentially saying, thanks for financing it up front. I'm going to buy you out with this government loan. That way I can do it my way yeah. and I can do it right. And he never got the funding mm. that he was hoping to get. So the Judas, him mm -hmm. and his wife, went back and forth between California and Washington a ton. They were constantly going back and forth and they were always using the Panama route. Yeah. In October of 1863... Theodore and his wife were traveling from California, and while they were crossing the landmass in Panama, mm. Theodore contracted yellow fever mm. and became very ill. But they still decided to travel on because he didn't really want to be ill and stuck in Panama. Right. So they did board a ship and continued on to New York. Which is where the ship they got on was heading. Yeah. On October 26th, 1863, they arrived in New York City. That was the same day that the first Central Pacific rails were laid in the journey mm -hmm. east out of Sacramento. Unfortunately, Theodore Judah died on November 2nd. Oh. A week later, he died. What a tragedy. A transportation tragedy. Yes, there's the tragedy in the story. Yeah. He put all that all effort in and all that hard work, blood, sweat, and tears. He went into the mountains and lived there for months doing the survey. He fought the finance guys. He lobbied Washington so many times, and he died before he got to see the first rail laid. And the thing about it is that the way he died was in contracting yellow fever because there was no transcontinental railroad yes! to get him where he needed to be. And he had to take yes! this Panama route. Yeah. Yes. How sad and poetic. Oh, uh, so unfair. He died 
at 37 years old, and he is buried in the family plot in Greenfield, Massachusetts. Mm. And Stephen E. Ambrose, the author of the book, Mm. he even put the question out there of what would the Transcontinental Railroad have been if Theodore Judah had stayed alive for it? Because it was wrought with problems, financing, getting materials in a timely manner, working throughout the seasons, going over the Sierra Nevadas was particularly problematic and it took them forever to do it. There were times that snow wiped out the tracks that they had built the season before, and it was just Mm. a nightmare. And so the question became, what might have been different had he lived? And it's just an interesting thing to think about. So to bring it back around and to kind of round out a little bit of the perspective of the whole thing. So he died in 1863. The Transcontinental Railroad was completed in 1869. It took six years to complete the Transcontinental Railroad, which was actually a huge feat. Yeah. Because you were traveling such a distance over mountains, across rivers, Building bridges and tunnels and all these things. It was an absolute feat of engineering. And the railroad was completed in 1869. Now, remember, prior to that, traveling from coast to coast was incredibly hazardous, Mm -hmm. took six months to get there, and it wasn't super expensive to travel. After the railroad was built... To go from New York to San Francisco took seven days, (laughs) and it cost $150 for first class and $70 for coach. Wow. And the whole thing changed. Yeah. (laughs) The whole transportation game changed, and now they were able to get supplies and goods and people coast to coast now in an affordable and timely manner. Because think about it. They're not only taking people, they're taking freight. Yeah. And now you can transport resources from one part of the country to another. And it was awesome. Such a cool thing. And poor Theodore Judah yeah. died before he got to Didn't experience get to see it. any of it. The fruits of his labor. So tragic. Yeah. So tragic. That's interesting. I'm interested in this book. I think I'm going to check it out. Actually, what's funny is the author is known for his war books. He writes about war often. But the only two I've read are his non-military books. Lewis and Clark was kind of a military expedition. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. His two offshoots from his normal genre of war books. But yeah. So that's all I really had to say about it. Of course, the story of the Transcontinental Railroad is vast. Of course, American history is vast. Yeah. The, the history of the West and all the American dreams and all that was vast as well. I tried to keep it within like a 20-minute yeah. window. <laughs> yeah, but no, yes. that was good. Really interesting. Now, I think... Now there's going to be an uptick in the Stephen E. Ambrose's uh, book sales, and he'll have us to think. So yeah. you're, you're welcome, You're welcome, sir. I Mr. liked your Ambrose, books. I assume you listen to this podcast. <laughs> we make 
a lot of assumptions about uh, <laughs> famous people listening to our podcast. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Why wouldn't they? <laughs> well, that's all I really had to say about the topic for now. So let's take uh, a quick break and we'll hear about your transportation tragedy. Okay, so I am up next and I'm going to talk about transportation tragedy. I'm going to talk about the Lucy Walker steamboat disaster. Oh, boy. Yes. I mentioned I went on a steamboat in New Orleans, the Natchez. It's fun. It's so <laughs> big. It's got a little band on there playing fun music. It was a good time. This, not a good time. <laughs> Just not... Already does not sound like a good time. Just not with the fun. The title Lucy that you Walker. gave. Yeah. The thing about this story is that it's not especially unique. Uh-oh. There were many, <laughs> yeah, there were many steamboat disasters. It was not unheard of. This was not some like strange anomaly. Steamboats were sinking constantly. during this time period so much so that eventually legislation was put in place which i'll talk about a little bit later the way i came across this particular disaster was somehow in the footnotes of a wikipedia article that i was reading for a different episode (laughs) (laughs) so you know you get down at the bottom it says see also yeah i clicked on like all right we'll just put that on the list (laughs) i've done that before yeah so that's a peek to my process i cannot for the life of me remember which thing i was researching when this came up but anyhow that's how it happened so um in 1884 that was the year of the accident and it was just off of new albany indiana um, which is the indiana side of louisville so Louisville, Kentucky's on one side, New Albany, Indiana's on the other, and the, they are across the Ohio River from each other. They had just launched from New Albany when all three of the boilers exploded. And the boat Dang. was ripped to shreds, caught fire, and then sank, as yeah. you can imagine. The boat itself was pretty average for the time as 144 feet long. It had been built in Cincinnati. And its home port was in Weber Falls uh, on the Arkansas River in the Cherokee Nation, which is now Oklahoma is where this is. But at the time, it was the Cherokee Nation. And so this boat had traveled. Its main route was to go from Louisville to New Orleans. It would move back and forth through there. Now, the day of the disaster, the captain at the time was a man named Thomas Halderman. He was very experienced. He had worked on steamboats most of his life in many different positions. He was a well-regarded captain. But for whatever reason, on this day, he was replaced and the owner of the boat, a man named Joseph Van, decided he was going to captain the boat. Hmm. Now, we'll talk about Joseph Van. He was Cherokee and filthy, stinking rich. (laughs) Just so rich that his name was Rich Joe. (laughs) That's what people called him because he had a cousin who was also named Joseph Van. So they distinguished him as being Rich Joe. 
Oh, I would hate to be the cousin. Yeah, right. <laughs> obviously, then poor Joe. Um, but you're like, that, that's a awful nickname. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I would feel the same way if the other Joe wasn't one of the top three leaders of the Cherokee Nation. He was oh. doing all right. He's doing all right for himself. <laughs> he was doing pretty good. But Rich Joe was a trust fund baby. Not mm-hmm. that those existed at the time, I guess. But the equivalent of. <laughs> yes. He had amassed this insane wealth from his father, who was a very prolific leader within the Cherokee Nation himself, named James Van. So James Van, extremely wealthy, has this kid, Joe. Joe is into horses and owning a giant mansion and running some businesses, just kind of dabbling a bit in everything. And originally, Rich Joe in the 1800s, earlier 1800s, had a mansion in Georgia called Diamond Hill. And he lived in this mansion and he enslaved hundreds of people. He had hundreds of people working on his properties and Then the time of removal, where the United States was removing Native Americans from many parts of the country, especially in the South, Rich Joe sees the writing on the wall and he's like, well, it looks like it's time for me to leave Georgia. And he was essentially run out. So he abandons his mansion, takes all of the people that he has enslaved and says oh darn i'm being kicked out of my house and he moves them all to the cherokee nation near the alabama river and builds a replica of his mansion in georgia (laughs) so the idea of someone who is a member of an oppressed people to the point of being removed from his home also owning hundreds of slaves is just mind-boggling to me yeah i don't understand it and that is that's just the beginning of this the impression that i got reading about this man is that he was looking out for number one (laughs) he seemed a little bit like a playboy like i just want my toys and to do what I want. And I'm not really thinking of the larger implications of what I'm doing or the lifestyle that I'm leading or my position in the world or even in a community, which is interesting since his father and his cousins were all leaders within the Cherokee Nation. But he's got money. He uses it to buy human beings. And (laughs) that's what he decided to do. I'm just not like you, dad. Okay. Yeah, it's like a reverse Cassius Clay. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that he was really into was horse racing, and he owned a horse named Lucy Walker, who was a very good racehorse, won a lot, was prized by him. So he even went on to breed her, and he was able to sell her offspring for large amounts of money. So that's one of the ways that he's making money. And another one is he gets into steamboat ownership and he buys several of them and uses them to transport mostly people up and down these rivers. And at about the time that his horse is really doing great, he buys another boat and decides to name it after his favorite horse. So he names this boat the Lucy Walker, puts an advertisement in the newspaper that says the Lucy Walker is available to freight whatever you want up and down the river. And... What he decides to transport up and down the river 
is people. Because the very first trip of the Lucy Walker, he transported 200 Native Americans from the Seminole tribe that had been rounded up by the U.S. Army and were being forcibly removed from Florida. And he was like, I'll take your people and get them out of there and send them to wherever you want them to go. Boy, he really had no qualms about the plights of people, did he? (laughs) He really did not. He was like, you're going to pay me? Cool. I'm in. So that's how he decided (laughs) to begin the transports of the Lucy Walker and transported those 200 people from New Orleans to the Indian Territory as part of that removal and uh, didn't look back. Spent a lot of time transporting slaves and Native Americans back and forth on this boat. So the Lucy Walker is operational and he's using it. He's continuing to expand his steamboat business, making a lot of money. So one of the other things that were really popular among steamboats was racing them. Oh, boy. It was uh, a real problem because these steamboats were not very sturdy. So pretty much anything could tear a hole in them and cause them to sink. But people enjoyed it so much (laughs) and they would gamble on it all the time that It happened constantly. These steamboats were always racing. So wait a minute. He started out with a racehorse. Then he named his race boat after his racehorse. Yes. (laughs) You are following along correctly. Yeah. So he was possibly racing the day of the disaster. Mm. There is evidence that another steamboat left at the exact same time headed to the exact same place called the Minerva. That may have been a factor that led to this disaster because what happened was that Rich Joe, who had named himself captain that day, you may remember, mm-hmm. went down and demanded that the boilers be cranked up as high as they could go. The engineer that he instructed to do this was one of his slaves, a man named Jim. The entire boat was crewed by slaves. Because he had, as you remember, left Georgia and moved all of these people into the Cherokee Nation. And then at some point in 1843, a group of 25 of his slaves ran. They took Mm. off. They were headed to Mexico. They met up with a group of slaves that had escaped some of the Creek tribe And they all made a break for it for Mexico and they got very close. But Joe Van had round had sent some headhunters out and rounded them all up and they were returned. So he recaptured them Mm. and he decided, well, this is a group of troublemakers that I don't want on my property causing issues among the rest of the people. So he sends them to be the crew on the Lucy Walker. So there's no real manifest that lists the names of the crew or exactly how many people were on there, because Mm. if it was a slave, they did not list them as as being on the boat at all. So there's really no record of exactly how many people were on the boat. But what we do have are a few accounts of people who had been enslaved by Van at the time and heard stories from people that survived the disaster of exactly what had happened. And that's how we found out that Joe had gone down and told Jim 
you need to throw in these slabs of meat into the boiler because the burning of the fat apparently made the boiler get hotter faster, enabling them to be faster. Hmm. And Jim knew enough about what he was doing that he knew that that was dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so according to another woman who was a slave at the time, Lucinda, she said Jim threw those slabs of meat in the boiler and then jumped off the ship. (laughs) He was like, I'm out of here. You're an idiot. (laughs) Yeah. But I can't tell you that. So I'm going to throw this in here and then I'm, I'm taking my chances in the river. Yeah. And he survived because immediately after putting that meat in the boiler, the boilers overheated and all three of them exploded. And it was grisly because the metal of these boilers were shrapnel. Yeah. After the explosion, when another boat, a snag boat called the Gopher, came over to try to help rescue people out of the river, there were reports that it was just pieces of bodies everywhere, including... The arm of the son-in-law of Rich Joe Van that someone got out, they recognized by his sleeve, and it was preserved and kept in the home of the Vans. Yeah. What they did not keep was the head of Rich Joe, which was also reportedly recovered. Who knows if that's true, but Rich Joe did not make it. Yikes. It was his decision to throw that meat in, and he was one of the first to die in the explosion. And there were more than 100 people who died. It's Mm -hmm. not positive exactly how many, because like I said, any record of who was on the boat was lost when the boat sank. Mm -hmm. But even that record would not have been accurate. Mm -hmm. They're thinking that there was about 130 to 140 people on the boat. And... Around 30 survived, mostly women and children, because their cabins were the farthest from the boilers. Two children died, no women, reportedly. Almost all the crew did. And, uh, you know, most of the people, 100 out of 130. It is pretty amazing that anybody survived. (laughs) Yeah, truly. And the main reason that some did is because the snag boat, the gopher, was right there to try to scoop some people up. Mm. The Gopher was one of many snag boats that were operating because of the issue with steamboats sinking all the time. Because not only were there problems with boats racing and occasionally colliding or pushing each other around, but the hull of a steamboat is so thin that it could easily be snagged on anything that was below in the river. So there was a whole industry of snag boats that would go out and try to pull out tree branches, the wreckage of other sunken steamboats, (laughs) (laughs) whatever else was ripping holes in, in the holes of these boats and causing them to sink. But largely, the biggest problem with steamboats was the boilers. That caused the majority of these disasters were boiler explosions. And there are many reasons for that. Some people blamed the racing because Uh they would push their boilers too high, too hot. Some was just negligence of the captains not checking the pressure. Some were poorly built boilers and valves and just 
a lack of knowledge of the physics of the metal of boilers and what they can mm-hmm. take and the fail point and the effect weather would have on them and all of these things. Following not just the Lucy Walker, but several other disasters that happened in that time period, finally there was some research done and a committee created. There were congressional debates, some smaller legislation that was either beefed up or created, and the Steamboat Inspection Service was created that really created standards across the board for safety that really helped. And there's a quote from the Steamboat Inspection Service that I wanted to read just because it's it was interesting to me and it felt like it really summed up kind of the feeling at the time. So it says such disasters have their foundation in the present mammoth evil of our country, which is an inordinate love of gain. We are not satisfied with getting rich, but we must get rich in a day. We are not satisfied with traveling at a speed of 10 miles per hour, but we must fly. Such is the effect of competition that everything must be done cheap. Boiler iron must be cheap. Traveling must be done cheap. Freight must be done cheap. Yet everything must be speedy. A steamboat must establish a reputation of a few minutes swifter in a hundred miles than others before she can make fortunes fast enough to satisfy the owners. Also, this seems to be demanded by the blind tyranny of custom and the common consent of the community. Damn. They did not mince words on that. They're brutal. Y'all are greedy and people are dying. (laughs) Which I think should be printed on the American currency. (laughs) (laughs) The motto of America. (laughs) Yeah, right? Yeah, so... We had all of these disasters all at once and then obviously legislation. I've, you know, that's the way the world, something new is invented. People exploit it to the point of failure (laughs) and danger. And then we have to reassess. And that's exactly what happened. One interesting tidbit that I did want to include is that among the confirmed dead was a man named Sam Brown. You may remember Sam Brown as the man who tried to kill Cassius Marcellus Clay and had his nose and ear cut off. Oh! Yes. So that answered one of our questions. He lived. He lived that encounter with Cassius Clay and then ended up on this steamboat and then died in a steamboat explosion. Boy, that guy couldn't catch a break, could he? I know, right? (laughs) Cassius Clay did comment following Sam Brown's death that he was one of the fiercest opponents that he had ever battled. (laughs) So I... Wow. He does not have a Wikipedia page. Sam Brown does not. How? I don't know. But I couldn't believe when his name came up again. So I might do a little more digging on Sam Brown. I feel like we've already heard some of the high points of his life, but there might be more. Yeah. Very, very interesting how they were created. I mean, you know, he they left from essentially Louisville. So is he just like walking around with no nose? I guess. Uh, Yeah, I guess. Yeah. That is the Lucy Walker steamboat disaster. Very, very tragic. Yes. Yeah. And I, sh- I said that with a smile. I really should not have said that with a smile. <laughs> they couldn't tell. Only I know how bad of a person you are. <laughs> <laughs> it was so tragic. <laughs> I loved it. 
Yeah, just another interesting glimpse into the gritty past of the United States and into a man who really had his priorities fucked up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what's kind of interesting is our stories kind of happened at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. In history. Yeah. Kind of wild. We're never really in the same time period often. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's been a while. There at the beginning, the first few episodes, we were right there together, but yeah, it's been a while. We're getting back to our roots. Yep. <laughs> Very good story. Thank you. When you are not reading about non-war stories from a war story writer, <laughs> what are you up to? What are you doing? What you got going on? Well, it's summertime, so we are in uh height of our season yeah we've got the chickens are laying full force the alpacas get sprayed with the hose every day because it's (laughs) hot and they are covered in fleece yeah so they get toasty and then we have meat birds and turkeys coming here at the end of the month so that's pretty exciting we're gonna have an additional 120 animals on the farm (laughs) (laughs) so i have that to look forward to but yeah if you want to see some fun and interesting animal content you can find us on tiktok where i post videos of the animals being silly often Mm -hmm. you can find us on facebook we are crimson moon farm and if you want you can go to our website and you can find uh, additional videos, a little more educational, some funny, yeah. but then you can find products and recipes at our website at crimsonmoonfarm.com. So right. what about you? You got you got shows coming up? Uh, I do. I have uh, the summer contest at the Comedy Attic is, uh, is happening now. I'm going to be doing the first round the 29th and 30th of June. I think this will already be out. That'll be passed by the time this comes out. But hopefully I'm in the next round. So if you're in Bloomington, you can come check out the next round. This is my year. I'm going to win it this year. Nice. Do it. That's that's what I said the last. I think it was like seven. (laughs) (laughs) This is the year, though. (laughs) This is seven times the charm. Yeah. It's just a really fun thing to do that. The crowds are always really great. I mean, I'll always do it. There's a lot more to it than just winning the trophy. But I do want to beat my friends. (laughs) <laughs> so we'll see how that goes i also have lots of other shows all over the place and i would bore you with the details now but instead you can get on my social media and i will post about them <laughs> until you uh mute me so <laughs> find me there i am uh, on facebook and instagram at shanda sung instagram is shanda.sung i am on tiktok and twitter at shanda s panda And I keep all my information updated there. And you can find this show, Passing Notes with Ashley and Shanda. That is what you're listening to. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Passing Notes with Ashley and Shanda and on TikTok at Passing Notes Podcast. We post little preview videos, little snippets, little teaser trailers on our TikTok. So you want to check those out. Find us there. And um, what's your favorite mode of transportation? Hit us up. Tell us about it. Yeah. And go watch our TikToks because for those of you who don't know us personally, you get to actually see our faces, which could be a good or bad thing. I don't know. Yeah. 
depends on depends on what you like. <laughs> depends on how well I applied my makeup before I shot <laughs> that particular TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> depends on how hot it was in the room I filmed in, whether I'm sweaty or not. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, definitely give a, uh, get on there and check those out. We also post little teasers from old episodes. So yes. if you haven't listened to all of the episodes, maybe you'll hear about one that you want to go back and listen to that sounds interesting. So do that. And overall, I hope you share this show with your best friend. Absolutely. And like every week, I want to thank my husband, Tyler, for helping us record, edit, and produce this show. What? Why are you looking at me? Huh? He's he's looking at me. I was thought he was waiting for something else. <laughs> Uh, I, I love my travel man. I want to thank him for continuing the, the nightmare that is the airline industry <laughs> to support all of these, me and all of these animals. <laughs> we want to thank you all for listening. This is episode 66. This was a good one. I had a lot of fun. We hope you did too. For Shanda Sung, I am Ashley Morgan. Join us next time on Passing Notes with Ashley and Shanda. We gonna ever like end an episode and be like, that one sucked. <laughs> oh my god. We have had a couple where we're like, oh, that was a mess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this one's going straight in the trash can. <laughs> delete, delete. <laughs> Luckily, they haven't been that bad, so yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs>